Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Hello and welcome, everybody. I'm Jill Rutter. I'm a senior fellow at the Institute for Government. I'm delighted to be hosting a podcast that maybe we thought we wouldn't be making, a podcast about the Brexit deal. At three o'clock on Christmas Eve, Ursula von der Leyen, Boris Johnson unveiled the Christmas present everyone had been waiting for, a Brexit deal. On Christmas Day, just as the Prime Minister told the nation they would have something to read after they finished their sprouts, the full 1,246-page agreement landed. Even the IFG's team Brexit failed to respond to Johnson's offer to spend the rest of Christmas Day reading it, but they made up for it on Boxing Day, and their first take went up on the IFG website last night. Do check it out. But if you'd rather listen as you walk around the park to work off that Christmas dinner or to go for a uh, go for a jog rather than read it all, uh, we're here to bring you the audio version of that Brexit deal in full. I'm delighted to be joined by the crack IFG Brexit team, Maddie Timmont-Jack, James Kane, Joe Marshall, and making a welcome and quick reappearance after her departure and before she goes over to the other side. Well, no, not that's not the right spirit of Brexit now. At the answer to Montaigne, Georgina Wright, to talk through what has and maybe a bit of what hasn't been agreed in the deal. So on Thursday, both sides described them as satisfied with the deal. Uh, Ursula von der Leyen expressed her quiet satisfaction. Boris Johnson, it has to be said, struck a rather more exultant tone in hailing his deal. So, Maddie, I'm going to come to you first. What do you think the highlights of the deal are? I think that's a very good question to start with, Jill. I mean, I think it's just worth saying, you know, when we're talking about this deal, um, what we are let's sort of start with what we are actually talking about. I mean, this is an agreement that covers the UK's uh, future economic partnership with the EU. You know, we've got chapters on goods, on services, on energy, on fish. Um, but also it, there's there are sort of provisions looking at how law enforcement authorities can cooperate in the future going forward. And I think the most important thing to say is that this is one agreement that will be underpinned by sort of one specific overarching governance structure. And this is something that the UK initially didn't want. This was a U- EU ask, um, but that is sort of where we landed. So that there is, it's sort of all packaged up in this, as say, twelve hundred page um, text. I mean, I think in terms of the highlights, I mean, it's worth saying, you know, if if we think about what what's actually been agreed, the the key sort of takeaway is that the UK and the EU have agreed a sort of zero tariff, zero quota um, deal on goods. So to try and facilitate the trade in goods between the UK and the EU, so there won't be um, tariffs to pay. Although um, there will be sort of additional paperwork to ensure that goods can. Uh, access that preferential um, tariff schedule. So they'll have to comply with things called rules of origin, which we might get onto in a bit. I mean, it's worth saying the sort of things that that it's really important, I think, to say that the, the prime minister, you know, he he said in his speech um, on the 24th that, that there would be a redu- a sort of removal of all non-tariff barriers. And that is categorically not true. It still will be significantly much more difficult to trade between the UK and the EU trading goods. Um, because there are, there are still, still quite significant barriers. Um, and again, we might come on to that in a bit more detail shortly. There is sort of some limited provisions on services, but it, it is much more, um, it's sort of not, not very far reaching at all. And again, we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, but I think that the other sort of 
important point is that is the fact that the two sides have sort of shown, I think, a level of pragmatism, particularly around the sort of security elements of the treaty, where although um, the UK was never going to be able to maintain access to the sort of full suite of EU measures it currently does, there is sort of you can see a level of sort of recognition that actually trying to maintain as much operational capability as possible is in both sides interest. So I think what we've sort of seen in the agreement is, you know, the UK actually wasn't asking for a huge amount. You know, we did, we don't, we sort of sort of moved on from the cakeism, as it were, of Theresa May. Um, but it didn't succeed in a lot of its sort of more ambitious asks. Um, it managed to sort of try and reduce some of the EU's most offensive sort of um, requests. But as I say, I think we sort of see a an agreement that probably reflects near enough what the UK wanted, where it prized the idea of sort of taking back control over further economic access. Um, and so so I think that that's sort of where, where we stand at the moment. But I think it'll be good to dig into some of the detail. And Maddie, when you say offensive, you mean offensive as in uh, as in sort of promoting its interests rather than sort of, you know, rude and hostile. Yes, sorry. No, exactly, exactly. So in terms of sort of the EU's concerns, for example, about protecting the integrity of the single market, it sort of initially started off saying it wanted pretty stringent um, measures on the level playing field. And and that has sort of been reduced to an extent. Um, So so sort of where the where the UK EU was sort of had quite its own sort of quite um, sort of ambitious requests um, and sort of wanted to, to sort of have quite firm obligations from the UK, the UK in some areas has successfully sort of negotiated that back down. Okay, so let's go into a bit more depth on this. You were saying that, you know, yes, uh, both sides actually always said they wanted a zero tariff and zero quota deal. And indeed, there wasn't really time with the end of the year deadline to negotiate tariffs line by line, as for example, they have in the Canada agreement. And that does make this stand out compared to other EU trade agreements. But you did mention that there's a sort of caveat that just because you're an export from the UK or indeed from GB, maybe more accurately, doesn't mean you'll necessarily qualify. So do you want to just talk us through where we got to on that slightly vexed issue about rules of origin? Yeah, so so rules of origin essentially it's about saying um, sort of how much of a of a good can be um, can sort of how much of the content of a good can come from outside of um, of the the UK or the EU in this specific um, agreement. Um, and and you know some goods um, don't have. There's been an agreement that they'll be tariff free without having to comply with rules of origin. But for many of them, they will need to. And it's sort of it's it's essentially it's, it's about understanding what um, where where your, the goods come from um, and sort of having a clear understanding of your supply chain Um, and so for those sorts of industries where they have very complex supply chains where they bring in lots of different parts from different parts of the world it can be more challenging um, to to actually to comply with that Um, and it's it's sort of and also it's that sort of additional paperwork essentially it's it's a new process that we'll need to comply with which at the moment you know as part of the single market and the customs union we don't need to do that Um, it's important to say there, there is one um, area where they have um, sort of there has been a sort of small win for the UK. Um, they were concerned about electric vehicles in particular, um, and there has it has sort of been agreed that there will be a phase in um, of some of the sort of more stringent rules of origin in in those areas. So the sort of 
threshold that, that, that um, electric vehicles will need to meet um, to be able to trade tariff free will be sort of increased over a period of time um, sort of threshold for having goods um, sorry having their content from inside the UK and the EU um, the other sort of important point is that batteries for electric cars will be able to come from outside of the EU or the UK for a period of time which is particularly important um, for some of uh, the car manufacturers based in the UK um, but but I think just more broadly the point is is that it is a new barrier. It is a new process. And for some um, for some companies, they're going to have to think about, you know, they'll have to revisit some of their supply chains and think about where where the, the, the sort of content of their good actually comes from to ensure they will still be able to um, get that tariff-free access to, to the EU. So we know that in an FTA of this sort, you, uh, you basically can make provisions to simplify customs processes and simplify regulatory checks. The UK had quite a lot of asks in that area. Where did we end up there? Yeah, exactly. So if we sort of move on to the non-tariff barriers, I mean, one of the things that the that the UK wanted to do was sort of to try and reduce the number of sanitary and phytosanitary checks. So these are checks for sort of for um, live animals, for um, so agri-food products as well. Um, and and sort of in that, we haven't got as much ambition, I think, as the UK initially hoped for. So there's a sort of general um, aim to say that, you know, try and keep this sort of the number of checks to be portionate and sort of to try and keep them to a minimum. But it doesn't go as far as an agreement, for example, the EU has with New Zealand, where on some animal products, they've agreed that the, the number of checks will only be sort of one to two percent. So that's an area where sort of I think the UK will be sort of disappointed. Um, I think the other area um, was the UK sort of wanted to have a broad uh, mutual recognition of conformity assessments. Um, which, is, which you're going to explain to us, Maddie, aren't you? Yeah, which I will explain. So it's about ensuring that goods comply with um, the UK standards and also EU standards. Um, so if if you had a sort of mutual blanket mutual recognition, what it would mean is that UK authorities would be able to say that a good does comply with EU standards and therefore be is it able to be traded into the EU. This isn't included in the deal. So what it will mean is that some goods will have to go through um, two lots of checks. So checks by UK authorities, but also checks by EU authorities. So that's sort of another bit of bureaucracy. I mean, there are some specific facilitations on some areas. So on, on, for example, medicine products, um, on motor vehicles and wine and and chemicals, there are some sort of facilitations. But more broadly, the UK wasn't able to sort of get that sort of broad um, mutual recognition provision, which which again just means that it will be more difficult and more costly to, to trade into the EU. Okay, that's all that's all very interesting. Now one of the things that's sort of very relevant to goods is the fact that we have a different trading regime in Northern Ireland as a result of the Northern Ireland Protocol. But in a sense, the sort of the bigger the difference between the UK uh, for GB and the EU, the deeper is that Uh, Is it a border? Is it not a border? Maybe Schrodinger's border in the Irish Sea. So where does this agreement on goods leave the Northern Ireland Protocol? Yeah, so what you've got to think about is that the border we're talking about between GB and EU is is similar, sort of similar processes will be required um, for uh, in the GBNI border. So, for example, you know, there, there will, in theory, need to be um, checks. So sanitary, the SPS checks, the sort of checks on agri-food goods, there'll also need to be customs declarations and paperwork filled in. Um, I mean, what's sort of important to say, I guess, is that 
this agreement is is relevant to Northern Ireland, but also the Northern Ireland Protocol itself is overseen by um, the Joint Committee of the Withdrawal Agreement. And we saw a, a few weeks ago there was an agreement on trying to sort of facilitate the functioning of that border to try and not introduce as many new burdens, particularly for the trade in agri-food. So for supermarkets, for example, trading into Northern Ireland. So they have already agreed that there will be a grace period on SPS checks um, for goods moving from GB into NI until next April. Um, after that point, in theory, then you will be having the same sorts of checks as, as you're having between um, Great Britain and the EU. I mean, there, I think there's a sort of question about whether or not there'll be a further decision about how that we manage in the joint committee. I mean, on the customs declarations, the the UK has set up a sort of trader support service to um, sort of basically comply with those, sorry, fulfill in those forms um, for businesses um, moving goods from GB to NI. So there isn't as much friction from Great Britain to Northern Ireland, particularly in January, but the sort of the overall shape of, of what that border looks like is sort of similar to um, what how the sort of goods will move between Great Britain and the EU. Okay, right. So that's enough goods. That's the sort of big goods section of the deal. Um, But of course, one of the things we know about the UK is that we are predominantly a services economy, even if quite a lot of those services aren't traded. And it's the area where we have an export surplus with the EU. Remember, the EU has an export surplus on goods with the UK. So turning now to James. James, the UK said it wanted a Canada-style deal but uh, recognising that the UK is a services economy, uh, we always hear that figure about 80% of our economy is services, but, uh, uh, but perhaps more importantly, it's the area where we do have at the moment an export surplus with the EU, whereas on goods, which we've just been talking about, we have a trade deficit. Uh, we did have some asks on services that went beyond the CETA deal. How far did we get in uh, realising our ambitions on services? I would say, in general, not very far. Um, it has gone a bit beyond the CETA deal, but essentially only as far as the Japan deal. There is one big reason for that, and that is that both the CETA deal uh, with Canada and the EU-Japan Free Trade Agreement contain uh, what's called the Forward Most Favoured Nation Clause. And what that means is that if the EU ever signs an agreement with another country, such as, for instance, the UK, which delivers better access on services than it gave to Japan or Canada in their deals, then it has to give those automatically to Japan or Canada. So if you see from that point of view, the EU, of course, is not going to go beyond what it gave to Japan and Canada in the UK deal, because it would have to give that automatically then to the other two. uh, And if it wanted to do that, it would have done it already, um, if you see what I mean. Uh, So there is uh, something on services. In, In fact, in many ways, it's probably as far as almost any free trade agreement Uh, has gone on services with the exception of some highly integrated free trade areas like uh, the one that exists between Australia and New Zealand, or indeed the the European Economic Area. Uh, But in terms of conventional free trade agreements, it's about as good as you get. It's got a negative list for services, which means that uh, essentially everything is liberalised unless it's specifically restricted. So there is a general principle that you can provide services across the border or by uh, through the other modes of service provision, uh, unless there is there is a specific reservation uh, in the agreement, which is not the case in all free trade agreements. In, in, in many FTAs, what you find is the reverse. Everything is banned unless it's specifically allowed. Uh, the, 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 the caveat there is that there are an awful lot of 
reservations. There are some very general reservations which are quite important for the UK. So, for instance, uh, the agreement does not deal with audiovisual services at all with cross-border broadcasting. Uh, the UK will still be part of a Council of Europe convention on the subject called the European Convention on Transfrontier Television. But uh, it will be very difficult to provide cross-border broadcasting services to the, I think, seven or eight EU countries that aren't members of the Council of Europe Convention there. Uh, on financial services, again, there is one massive carve-out for uh, what they call prudential regulation. So effectively measures that countries take to prevent banking crises and so on. And that prudential regulation can still act as a pretty significant barrier to trade. And then there are lots of... Um, you might call them itty-bitty restrictions that apply to individual services in specific areas where UK nationals or, or residents or UK uh, domiciled companies will no longer be able to provide services. So, I mean, to, to give a few sort of slightly silly examples, uh, a UK national will no longer be able to be a cartographer or a chartered surveyor in Bulgaria. Uh, they won't be able to operate pharmacies in several EU member states. Uh, they will have limited access to the cross-border supply of education services in quite a lot of member states. And I think what I would say beyond that is that the architecture that produces uh, a lot of trade in services within the EU is, of course, missing in this deal uh, by its very nature as a free trade agreement. So one of the things that the government has touted as one of the very few areas where they have gone beyond Japan or Canada is on legal services, where they've got a general entitlement to supply uh, for UK lawyers to supply legal advice on either UK law or public international law to EU customers. But there are several caveats to that. First of all, that is restricted by some reservations that some member states have taken. Uh, so rather oddly, I think if you look at the reservations chapter, you will find that that legal advice uh, can be provided uh, by a uh, can only be provided rather by a lawyer who is actually resident in the Czech Republic, but it cannot be provided by a lawyer who is resident in Austria to an Austrian customer. Um, you have to so, so you have very different uh, restrictions which apply in relation to individual member states, and also going back to that architecture point that there's there's not the same uh, some grounding for uh, market access. People who want to provide services within the EU can go to the courts of the member state where they want to provide those services and then ultimately to the European courts if they're facing some kind of restriction and they can say this is unfair, this breaches the single market principles in services. Um, and there have been a number of cases uh, involving lawyers. There was one uh, quite famous case in the sort of early 2000s, I think, called Wilson, where a British lawyer wanted to provide legal advice in Luxembourg uh, and he was told he would have to take a language test, uh, I imagine in, in French rather than Luxembourgish. Uh, and he appealed this to the European courts. And they said, no, the freedom to provide services implies the freedom to provide this particular type of service without regard to, to, to language requirements. Um, that won't be possible under the agreement in future. Uh, there will be no access for individuals to any kind of dispute settlement mechanism. So effectively, you'll have to go to your either your member state or to the commission or to the UK government as a, a European or a British person wanting to provide services and basically get them to complain and uh, use the dispute settlement provisions on their behalf to get some restriction that you don't like lifted. And obviously that is a lot more difficult. It takes a lot more time and your home country might not want the diplomatic hassle. So, okay. Yeah, that, oh, that's quite, that is quite, um, quite a hassle. Uh, and probably going to have to learn French. 
Um, but moving on, the UK was quite keen to secure um, liberalisation of sort of short-term, the short-term work requirements, wasn't it, for people providing services to EU requirements so they could go and service their EU clients more easily and also to maintain mutual recognition of professional qualifications. Did they get anywhere on that? Uh, they've not got nowhere, uh, but they haven't really got very far either. So on mutual recognition of professional qualifications, what the agreement provides for is a framework for subsequently recognising professional qualifications. Essentially, uh, professional bodies in the UK and in the EU can get together to agree some kind of mutual recognition between them. They then can take that to the Partnership Council, which is the overarching uh, intergovernmental uh, oversight body for the agreement, and they can apply for that to be added in effect as, a, as an annex to the agreement. But on day one, there will be no mutual recognition of professional qualifications. And what about business visas? How easy will it be you know, if you're trying to go and provide a service that doesn't require a qualification in another EU country? Will that be very easy? It will depend on the individual member state. Um, all the agreement effectively does there is say that you cannot impose either a total ban on that or a, a quota, a fixed number. So you can't say we will have no more than 500 management consultants a year uh, coming from the UK and no more. Um, but that doesn't mean that you can't install procedural requirements, require applications, some form of documentary application and charge fees for, them, for all of that. So it's, it's, it's better than nothing, but there's still going to be a lot more paperwork if you, if you need to do that. Or there may not be. Um, one of the features of leaving the single market is that you effectively go back to what the law of the individual member state says on whether and to what extent and under what conditions nationals of third countries have access to their services markets. And just a, just a question here. This is a bit left field, James. You may not know the answer. But does that matter? If I work for, you know, a distinguished consulting firm in London, but I have an EU passport, am I then able to use my free movement rights as now? Or is the problem that my company is a London-based company? Uh, will there be sort of two classes of consultant almost, those with access to an EU passport and those without? Uh, I don't actually know uh, on the subject. I mean, I would imagine that given that the right to uh, the, the, the given that the rights of workers are established under EU law and belong to EU nationals, not EU residents, um, then you could well see uh, consultants or lawyers or, or people of that who are lucky enough to have UK-EU dual nationality uh, still being able to fly in and, and provide those services. There might be some difficulty, I imagine, for the company that employs them contracting to do that, though. Oh, all right. Interesting, interesting, interesting. Though the Prime Minister, in a sort of rare admission that his deal wasn't absolutely perfect, told the Telegraph today that it didn't go as far as he might have wanted on financial services. Uh, that obviously matters quite a lot uh, to the UK because that's a rather big and rather successful export area to the EU. Uh, what was he talking about? Um if you look at the financial services sections of the agreements, there are an awful lot of carve-outs from this general principle that uh, you can provide services from the UK into the EU and vice versa. Uh, so the, uh, if, if you look at the, the reservations on financial services, the EU says that it reserves the right to adopt or maintain any measure with respect to the cross-border supply of all financial services other than 
uh, a few of them mainly about um, insurance, which is a bit more liberalized. And even that insurance liberalization does not apply in some member states like um, Estonia or Poland. So uh, there is there, there there is quite limited access guaranteed under the agreement to EU financial services markets. That doesn't necessarily mean, in fact, one thing I should have said uh, about the general issue of reservations, that doesn't necessarily mean that UK companies will definitely not be able to provide those services, but the, but it means that they have no guarantees. Uh, the, either the EU as a whole or the individual member state can uh, restrict their access without violating the agreement. Uh, and lots of uh, access for UK financial services firms to EU markets will still be dependent on equivalence decision, equivalency decisions taken by the EU unilaterally. And any sign of them coming down the chute? Uh, there's no, we, we don't know anything definitive yet. There is a, uh, a clause in one of the non-binding joint declarations uh, that you find tagged on at the end of the uh, agreement that the two sides will seek to establish cooperative regulatory dialogue provisions and it would be through that kind of provision that the equivalence decision might be made. Uh, but uh, that is non-binding. The provisions aren't uh, in force yet uh, and won't be for a couple of months, I should think, at least. So looking at the 1st of January, UK financial service firms will have to fall back on their, if you like, no deal arrangements that they were making. Uh, that would seem likely, yes. OK, Um Joe, the Prime Minister also said that he was quite happy with the provisions he'd got on data. So will data flows be able to continue as now? So there are some provisions in the deal on data. Uh, Both sides have said that they are committed to facilitating cross-border data flows and the deal prohibits uh, either side sort of imposing requirements for data to be stored or processed in certain locations. And that will save businesses some costs of having to move where they store or process their data also commitments to maintain high standards of protection for personal data and privacy. And there are also other bits on data sharing across the deal. Uh, you know, we see bits on that in the law and justice uh, sections, on social between social security agencies, on customs cooperation. But the big missing piece, really, of a puzzle is data adequacy, sort of a big EU decision on whether or not the UK's data protection regime is offers equivalent protection to the EU's. And that's a decision not in the deal, but a sort of unilateral decision for the EU to take. Now, there is a joint declaration alongside the deal that says that the EU will make that assessment of data adequacy. But we don't expect that to happen in time for the 1st of January. And so we expect the EU is going to adopt temporary measures lasting up to six months that will allow data flows to continue and that will prevent the need for companies and others to fall back on expensive and cumbersome alternatives like writing clauses into contracts in order to continue to transfer data from the EU to the UK. It's worth saying that the UK had already said that data would be able to be transferred from the UK to the EU in any scenario. But I suppose the big question is, uh, you know, that's a good thing that we're you know, likely to have all of these things in place and there isn't going to be this cliff edge and data on 1st of January. And if an adequacy decision is made, that will also be really important. But uh, it's, you know, it's worth noting that adequacy uh, can be withdrawn at any time by the EU. And that creates sort of a sense of ongoing uncertainty, really. And that uncertainty has wider implications as well, because, for instance, uh, you know, 
parts of a security corporation uh, you know, could be ended if uh, the adequacy decision is withdrawn in future. So I think ultimately, uh, you know, we're not going to have a massive cliff edge on data, uh, but we do have sort of ongoing uncertainty going forward uh, uh, if the UK took steps which meant that the EU no longer believed that the UK's data regime provided adequate protection. Okay, well, we can't see data flows, but uh, one of the things people might be asking is, does this deal ensure that planes, airlines will be able, when we're able to get back on them, that airlines will be able to continue to operate as now between the UK and the EU? Well, I would say as now. Um, I basically say in some ways we sort of got what we expected. Uh, so we've got basically the ability uh of UK airlines and EU airlines to fly without restrictions on capacity and frequency between points in the UK and in the EU. So in that sense, planes will continue to fly, flights will continue, people should, when hopefully they can get back on planes, be able to go on holiday. Um, However, UK airlines have lost the ability to operate flights within the EU, uh, and many airlines have had to take measures already to set up EU subsidiaries to allow them to continue operating. We know people like EasyJet did that. The deal does have some options for sort of further bilateral agreements between individual member states and the UK, particularly on sort of cargo flights uh, between the UK and the EU and then on to a third country. And also, uh, you know, in order to benefit from these uh, air air traffic rights, uh, there are rules on airline ownership. And in order to benefit, UK airlines will have to be majority owned and controlled by UK nationals, which is more restrictive for now. Um, and EU airlines by European nationals. However, uh, you know, the UK basically had originally wanted more lateral liberal ownership requirements, particularly to prevent the need for UK airlines that have a lot of European shareholders to have to sort of change their ownership structures in order to comply with these new rules. The UK didn't get that ask overall, but it did get part of that ask because there is provision in the deal which basically says, UK airlines operating at the end of the transition period will be able to benefit from these rules if they are majority owned by UK and or European nationals. So they will be able to continue operating and benefit from those rights without having to do that sort of change of ownership. And then uh, I suppose the other part on aviation is that we have a sort of separate, we have sort of provisions on aviation safety as well. that includes sort of recognition of certain aviation safety certificates and approval was needed in order to operate for sort of air traffic rights provisions, but also a specialised committee on aviation safety that can move towards sort of further mutual recognition of aviation safety approvals uh, and practices in future. But it's worth noting that to some extent, you know, that is basically a case of trying to in future, rebuild some of the mutual recognition on aviation safety that will be lost on the 1st of January when we fall out of the European aviation safety uh, arrangements. Okay, and coming on to, so that's the planes. Planes will still continue to operate, so that's that's good news. The UK also, I think this was the only place in, in its ask that it acknowledged its geographic proximity to the EU and that that might make it a bit different to Canada, but it had some asks on road transport, not least on uh, on allowing numbers of trucks to do that. We've had some graphic uh, indications this week of just how extensive that truck traffic across the short straits actually is. So 
did we get did we get that special permissions office not being a big feature of the EU's deals with Canada mm-hmm. or Japan, where I think it's fair to say the tra- traffic is relatively limited? Yep. Yes, I think that probably is very fair. It'd be great to know how many trucks actually ever make it from the EU to Canada. Um, but yes, there are provisions in the deal to allow sort of road haulage to continue. And this was quite an important point uh, you know, of contention because basically a fallback arrangements, if we didn't get that, were quite restrictive and uh, could have caused big problems. And that led to lots of sort of uh, unilateral measures for no deal being announced, which now won't be needed. Um, but in the deal, we have got sort of good news in that similar to aviation, hauliers will be able to continue operating you know, between uh, the UK and the EU and be able to operate through each other's territory as well and sort of transit across each other's territory without the need for new permits and approvals. Now, I think on road haulage, both the UK and the EU have compromised a bit. The UK has accepted that hauliers are going to have to adhere to standards on things like driving hours, vehicle specifications, professional qualifications. And the EU has accepted that UK hauliers can have what are called cabotage rights. But basically, this is the right to pick up and drop off goods within the EU and for EU hauliers do the same within the UK. But those rights are going to be more limited than under EU membership. Um, and so we are going to see you know, road haulage continue. It is very important uh, for both sides. We know that you know a big part of the road haulage market between the UK and the EU is made up of EU hauliers, and so it was you know it would have affected uh, you know, EU hauliers as well if this arrangement hadn't been in place. I would say though, you know, obviously the last week or so has shown uh, the sort of uh, perils of a disruption uh, on trade between. UK and EU, particularly at the short straits. And I would say that I think the biggest point on the risk of traffic disruption at the end of the year is not about the rules on road haulage per se. I think they're going to allow movements to continue. What the real pinch point is going to be is whether or not drivers and the the businesses that are using those lorries are ready for the additional customs and regulatory checks at the border that Maddie was talking about earlier. And how they're going to deal with those uh, and the possible disruption caused by people not being ready for those alongside this new added pressure of having to facilitate COVID tests for drivers, which wasn't really anticipated when a lot of this planning was put in place. So uh, ultimately, I think you, you, the rules on road haulage are OK, but in terms of disruption at the border, uh, that could well still happen. And we'll have to wait and see what happens in just a few days time. That's, that's a good point. Good point, Joe. James, we've managed to get halfway through this podcast, um, rough estimate, uh, without talking about fish, which seemed at times to be the issue that was going to scupper the entire deal. So can you just tell us what exactly has been agreed on fish? Yes, uh, although it is an extremely complicated uh, part of the agreement, which uh, contains multiple clauses which appear to contradict each other, but don't on closer inspection. So looking at it chronologically, uh, from the 1st of January next year through a five-year transition period, then things continue uh, actually in a way that's pretty similar to how they work at the moment. There is guaranteed access for EU fishing vessels to UK waters and vice versa. And they will be able to catch fish uh, up to the shares of the total allowable catch, which are listed in uh, Annex uh, Fish 1, rather unimaginatively named to the agreement. After the end of that transition period, 
then in theory, we go to annual negotiations, as the UK said it wanted in its preparations for the deal. I think a but is coming now here. There is is a but coming down the line. Uh, There is a little way to go before the but. The first thing before the but, uh, is that if those annual negotiations uh, is that those, if those annual negotiations do fail, then in principle, uh, EU fishing vessels right to access UK waters also stops. So every year you have to have a negotiation between the UK and the EU. First of all, on how much fish is going to be allowed to be caught in EU and UK waters, and on whether the EU and UK will have access to each other's waters in order to catch that fish. Now there's the but. But if the UK and EU cannot agree, then that doesn't mean that access stops immediately. Uh, In the first place, there is uh, a kind of notice period almost where a provisional quota is set for each party based on the recommendation of an international scientific body called ICES, the International Council for the Exploration of the Sea. They uh, recommend a safe quota, a safe catch of fish based on the uh, the amount of fish that is there to be caught and its uh, and its sustainability. Uh, now, the EU and the UK ordinarily don't have to agree to that, but if they fail to agree to a replacement, that one takes effect automatically and is automatically split between the UK and the EU in line with the quota shares that are listed in the Annex Fish One to the agreement. They don't get that indefinitely, rather for fish, which for certain fish, they get it for three months, for other types of fish for a month and a half, and for a third category of fish, they get it for one month, just for January. So they can still keep fishing into a bit into the new year. Now, once, that's, once that period is over, their access to EU fishermen's access to UK waters and UK fishermen's access to EU waters does lapse. Uh, but there's that word again. At that point, the EU can impose tariffs on UK fisheries exports to the EU to, in effect, redress the balance and uh, remedy the losses that are caused to the EU by the UK's uh, cutting off access to its waters. So that's the first sort of retaliatory measure the EU can take. That's restricted to fisheries products. And then there is a second one, which is more general, which is not so time constrained, where if the EU or the UK considers that the other party is not fulfilling its obligations under the agreement. And bear in mind that those obligations include uh, an obligation in the fisheries chapter uh, that the result of the negotiations on quota shares should usually be uh, in line with the shares listed in the annex of the agreement. If the EU considers that the UK is generally not fulfilling its obligations, then it can suspend tariff concessions, not just on fish, but Uh, then on all types of goods. And if the EU still doesn't consider that that is sufficient to uh, remedy the the problems that are caused, then it can, in effect, guillotine almost the entirety of the agreement. So the the trade bit uh, and the transport bits. So to slightly echo um, what Keir Starmer might say, how did it come to this? That sounds as though if we try and do anything other than just preserve the shares that the EU gets at the end of the five and a half year transition, we basically lose the whole deal. Is that uh, is that a wrong reading of this? Maybe not the security cooperation bit, but uh, uh, yeah, how on earth can we have signed up to that? I think that's probably a bit strong. First of all, the the EU's response uh, 
is required to be uh, is required to be proportionate uh, to the losses that the UK's denial of access has caused. Uh, and given the um, and, and given the, the value of the fisheries industry, uh, the, the very low value of the fisheries industry, it wouldn't seem that suspending trade cooperation, uh, road transport, and a few other bits of the agreement could really be considered commensurate to the economic and social impact of a failure to grant fisheries access. So, uh, first of all, I think it's probably a bit strong to say that that, that there's nothing the UK could do uh, in that circumstance. Um, it might be that it would just see increased tariffs imposed on its fisheries exports to the uh, EU. And that, of course, is what would have happened uh, if they had reached uh, no deal at all. If there had been a no deal scenario, then the UK would have, would have had all the fish it could catch, but it wouldn't have been able to sell any of it tariff-free into the EU. Uh, that sounds a bit more reasonable. So who gets to decide? Is this just for the EU as judge and jury, or is there some sort of independent mechanism to decide this? No, there is an arbitration tribunal. Uh, we haven't talked about the governance structure of the agreement, I think, yet. But we're going to. We're going to later. Yes. Yes, um, but there is a, a system for resolving disputes uh, under the agreement. Now, on fish, uh, as I just said a moment ago, you've got two. You've got in effect two separate retaliatory mechanisms. The first one is kind of the urgency one, where you have in one year failed to reach an agreement on the allowable catch for that year, and you need to take steps immediately. So there are some very short timelines there. Uh, I think the EU can can take retaliatory action uh, after after about a week um, following the notification by the UK that that access to UK waters is going to cease in that year. Um, there is, however, on the, the broader retaliatory mechanism, there is the possibility for the, the party that is retaliated against, so, I mean, let's be blunt, probably the UK, uh, to refer the question to an arbitration tribunal, which gets to decide whether the measures that the EU is taking in this case are proportionate to the losses that the UK has caused. Okay, um, okay, I get that now. Um, we've seen quite a lot of reactions um, from the fishing organisations who are saying how disappointed they think that ultimately they've been sacrificed by Boris Johnson, notwithstanding his assurances to them, to get the wider deal. And Nicola Sturgeon seems to be piling in as well. Is this deal as disappointing for them as they're claiming? It's not the best deal in the world for fish. Uh, I think uh, you could probably argue that uh, it's the UK government's own fault for raising their expectations so high that they would get uh, all the fish there was to catch. Um, it does seem uh, curious, given what the government was saying about fish in the past, that well after 2026, well after the end of the transition period, there are going to be some species of fish caught in UK waters where the EU will have a right to a majority of the catch. So if you look at some species like um, like blue ling, which is uh, it's mainly used for industrial processing, um, even in UK waters, the EU will retain uh, rights to uh, almost three quarters of the fish to be caught. So it, it, it probably is quite disappointing if you're expecting UK shares of uh, 80-90% to find that although the UK's share of the fish caught in UK waters is going to go up, uh, it won't go up to anything close to 80-90% uh, as Norway gets at the moment. And for certain species of fish, the EU will continue to take a large majority of the fish to be caught oh okay so they do have some justification on their on their side but as you said perhaps the government should have rolled the pitch a bit more um i want to continue our tour james of 
um, potential sticking points. Uh, we know that the other big battleground of these negotiations was the provision on level playing field. Just wonder if you could sort of, you know, just take us through briefly <laughs> where we uh, ended up. Um, on the level playing field, uh, there are probably wins for both sides there. So if you see the UK's primary objective as not having any influence of EU law or the European Court of Justice uh, on UK law in future, um, then it's got most of that. In fact, the agreement is quite different from some of the other agreements the EU has with countries in uh, the European neighbourhood, like Ukraine, in that even where it's referring to concepts which do appear in EU, like subsidies or state aid, as the EU tends to call it, um, it doesn't just copy provisions directly from from the EU treaties. That said, there are still some quite tight constraints on on what the UK can do in future, uh, particularly on subsidies uh, and to a lesser extent environment, not so much perhaps on labour. But on subsidies, you've got a long list of principles which the UK subsidy regime uh, will have to uh, embody in future. Any subsidies will have to be the least distortive means of achieving the objective. The objective has to be uh, sort of rationally related to some kind of market failure or the need for social equity. You can't use subsidies to prop up a failing business indefinitely. There has to be some sort of realistic restructuring plan. And there has to be an independent monitoring authority to make sure that UK subsidies uh, are actually uh, abiding by these principles and some form of recourse to the courts to challenge subsidies. So um, on on subsidies, the EU's probably got quite a lot of what it uh, wanted there, even if the eventual agreement is not quite as uh, far-reaching as its original um, rather ambitious uh, text, which basically said that the UK would keep applying EU subsidies law in, in perpetuity. Um, on things like environment, uh, you've got some things that you might not necessarily have expected to see in there. So, for instance, there's an open-ended commitment for the UK to continue applying the precautionary principle uh, indefinitely. Uh, and various other principles of EU environmental law. And then backing all of this up, you've got the, uh, that they're called rebalancing measures in the agreement. I think uh, someone in number 10 called them a freedom clause, which is uh, a possible interpretation, perhaps not one that, that I would adopt myself, um, which effectively says that the parties recognise that they each have the right to diverge, but also recognise that if they do diverge, that could create distortions to trade. And they have a right to take measures to redress that distortion, um, essentially by suspending concessions, by by putting up tariffs on each other's exports. And once again, like on fish, there is ultimately an arbitration panel which can decide whether that rebalancing is, is proportionate to the distortion being created. But the EU will still be able to take action pretty rapidly uh, if it feels that the UK is changing its legislation in a way that creates distortions to trade. So this is this is where we ended up on that famous ratchet evolution clause that we heard quite a lot about at uh, earlier earlier stages. Do we know how high the bar is going to be set there, James? I mean, how you know if every time we slightly change the coverage of a site of special scientific interest, or you know maybe ministers look again at the birds directive, are they going to have to worry about what the EU will do? Um, no, uh, not not so much. Uh, the original version of the ratchet principle, where if you ever increased your level of protection for the environment or labour or something uh, to, to a level higher than the one that applies at the moment, uh, is not uh, in this agreement at all. The, the, the target level is the level that the parties are at 
at the end of the transition period. So that that rather uh, binding ratchet mechanism that would have effectively held you to any future increase in in uh, level of protection is not in the agreement. Um, that said, the, the rebalancing mechanism is it works a bit differently from the way earlier versions seem to uh, have been imagined. So the, the, the way the rebalancing mechanism works, it's not so much about whether the UK is going down or the EU is going up. It's about whether there is some kind of divergence wherever that divergence emerges from. And do we have a bar? I think the language is about significant divergences or material effects on on trade. Is that right? Is it? Uh... Yeah, material impacts on trade or investment uh, as a result of significant divergences. So we've got both material and significant there. Uh, and uh, I suspect if if this agreement uh, works out anything like the WTO agreements, then there will probably be lots of interesting decisions by arbitration panels on what material and significant turn out to mean. And do we, I'm just quite intrigued about how these arbitration panels work. I mean, one of the things I think we know about arbitration panels is they aren't obliged, like courts in the UK certainly are, to follow precedent. So is it possible we'll get some quite random decisions coming out of arbitration panels? It's hard to say, actually, um, largely because uh, arbitration panels under free trade agreements are actually quite rare. Um, they in the whole sort of history of, of free trade agreements, I can only think of one uh, case where a an FTA dispute settlement mechanism has actually been used. It was in the US's FTA with Guatemala. Uh, so um, based on past experience, it's very difficult to know how this will actually turn out, um, or indeed if it will be used at all, because the EU has a lot of free trade agreements with roughly similar provisions for arbitration panels or dispute settlement uh, mechanisms in them, perhaps not with such far-reaching substantive obligations on things like environment, but but similar structurally. Uh, and it's never used any of them, nor has it ever had anyone use them against it. So I'm just quite intrigued about where we think we ended up on this, because Ursula von der Leyen on Thursday said that she thought the UK was quite constrained by the agreement, but the Prime Minister clearly thought I mean, he was making quite a lot of, you know, on subsidies, He'd be able to go in and support industries of the future, left behind communities and things like that. You know, do we have any clue at the, at the moment who is right on that? Well, they could both be right. I mean, you know, a lot of people have said that it is, uh, given what we know about what the prime minister wants to do on subsidies, it's far from impossible that he would have been able to do all of that well within the confines of EU state aid law. Uh, and so the, the, the agreement is definitely not stricter than that. Um, it's 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 quite hard to say how binding they are for the UK. I think in terms, if you adopt a rather sort of theoretical interpretation of uh, sovereignty, this, this sort of rather idealised notion, then certainly the EU is more sovereign under this agreement because unlike where, where EU law is in place, the UK cannot legally diverge from it. It would break the law if it were to do so. Under this agreement, it explicitly recognises that the parties have the right to diverge. Uh, on their the, their uh, environmental labour uh, regulation and on subsidies, it just says that there are consequences if they choose to do so. So the UK is not bound any tighter than it feels itself to be bound by the need to protect what it's gained under the agreement. Okay, that's that's very useful, um, Maddie. I want to come on to a, sort of another big issue. Um, we always talk about this as a trade agreement, but it's not just a trade agreement, is it? It also does security cooperation. You said at the start that actually this this was 
not a bad outcome on security, given what might have happened if we hadn't had an agreement or indeed if we'd had a very thin deal. So do you want to just take us through the highlights of what's uh, what's been agreed on security cooperation? Yeah, no, that, that's right. I mean, I think it, it's important to say, you know, from the outset, the EU was always very clear that as a third country, you know, outside of the EU, but also crucially outside of the Schengen area, the UK wouldn't have the same sort of access to the sort of suite of measures that the EU has to sort of manage cooperation between um, law enforcement authorities. Um, and, and that's sort of what we have seen in the agreement. But as I said, I do think we can see there's been a sort of pragmatism in terms of trying to maintain some of the sort of um, ways of cooperating, even if um, even if it's sort of not quite the same as what we have at the moment. So, I mean, if we start with sort of the positives, um, for it, so they, they have agreed, both UK and the EU, and this is something they both wanted throughout, um, have agreed They'll continue to share DNA and fingerprint information through PRIM, also passenger name records. Um, so that's something that, that as I say, both sides um, wanted. If we look at some of the sort of key agencies that help sort of manage uh, cooperation, so Europol and Eurojust, um, the UK, they're sort of framework um, in, in this agreement for um, continued cooperation between UK um, authorities and those agencies. And also that will be supplemented by specific agreements with each agency. Um, but what we're seeing there is, so if we look at Europol, for example, the UK will be able to send liaison officers to Brussels, as other third countries do. Um, the Europol will also be able to send and liaison officers to the UK to sort of try and manage that process. There's also provisions for sharing information. Um, they'll also be able to take part in operational meetings if member states involved invite them to. So although the UK won't be able to sort of initiate some of those processes in the same way, they will be relying on sort of positive working relationships with specific member states there is a sort of a recognition that actually continuing to engage with those agencies is very important. And I say similarly with Eurojust that the UK will be able to send liaison prosecutor to to, um, Eurojust and they will be able to send a liaison magistrate to the UK. So to sort of try and manage some of those, um, that relationship. So I think we're sort of seeing, as I say, so something relatively positive there, although it does reflect the fact the UK will be a third country. I think the sort of challenge, the sort of one of the big sort of, I guess, what what the UK wanted was to maintain access to some of the EU's key databases. And that's where we sort of see the agreement fall short. And I think, sort of not surprisingly, for those people who've been watching this, you know, the EU has been very clear from the start that the UK would lose access to the Schengen Information System um, and also ECRIS, the um, European Criminal Records um, Information System. Um, So, those so they have lost access to those databases and i think what's really important particularly if we talk about the schengen information system sys2 the sort of key part of that database is that it sort of police forces on the ground can have access to sort of real-time data about sort of missing people missing unwanted people and objects and they can sort of access that on the ground from their own sort of you know computers um what the sort of agreement does allow for is some sort of you know it allows for the exchange of data on those issues so on the wanted or missing persons or objects or on criminal records but that will be in response to requests from um sort of uk authorities or eu authorities um or, or in some cases, they can sort of volunteer that information, but it basically becomes a lot more cumbersome. Uh, it's not; it doesn't replace the capability that we did have. And I think sort of one thing to say is that you know, in 2019, UK police uh, forces accessed the Schengen Information System 600 million times. So it's something that actually we really did use a lot, and we have lost access to. But I think what we have seen in the agreement is an attempt to try and maintain some of those data flows. 
um, for that period. And I think then the sort of other one to mention is the um, is the replacement for the European arrest warrant. So there is an agreement on sort of surrender to try and facilitate um, the surrender of people who've committed a crime or wanted it for having committed a crime in another country. And it's really important to say that sort of matters because the the fallback in that area, the European Convention, um, the 1957 European Convention, it, it was sort of very cumbersome, very slow, would have taken a lot, you know, could have taken months to try and sort of extradite someone um, if you wanted to try them. And so the fact that they have managed to agree a sort of faster and more smooth process, I think, is very positive. And that's something I think that Naomi Long, the uh, Justice Minister in Northern Ireland, said was absolutely critical for Northern Ireland because of the stopping that being a political issue to extradite people over over the border there. So that's, I think, good news from Naomi's point of view. Maddie, we heard at some points that one of the stumbling blocks on cooperation security was the extent of the UK's commitment to the European Convention on Human Rights. How did they end up resolving that? Yeah, so so if you look at the agreement, the sort of the, the agreement is underpinned by a commitment from both sides to the rule of law, fundamental rights, including the European Convention on Human Rights, and also a sort of provisions relating to the high level of protection of personal data. Now, the sort of EU originally sort of talked about how the UK needed to um, demonstrate a commitment to the European Convention of Human Rights in their own sort of in domestic law, and it doesn't sort of the, the provisions don't say that, but it does say that if if sort of either side um does sort of demonstrate um that if either side sort of uh no longer uh follows the the convention on human rights then they could decide to suspend the agreement on that basis and um sort of data adequacy as well which joe was talking about that was that will also be a sort of basis for possibly suspending that part of the agreement so i do think that largely we're probably seeing that the eu um did did get a win there. Um, but I think the UK sort of pushed back very hard on on sort of being told how to legislate to protect the Convention of Human Rights. And that's something that that they sort of managed to to avoid having on the face of the agreement. Um, but yeah, I think I think we have seen that that, that will be um, crucial to uh, the continuing operation of this part of the agreement. Okay, so it's not uh, not an absolute done deal forever if the UK decides to move away from that. Joe, I just wondered, we spent some uh, some time going through some of these detailed things. I just wondered whether there was anything else you wanted to highlight from this agreement uh, that people might be interested in, anything on mobility, social security, uh, the programmes the UK might participate in. Is there anything else? Uh, yes, uh, quite a few little bits and pieces. I'll skip through some of them quickly. I mean, James talked about some of the sort of mobility points uh, in relation to services earlier, but... Uh, we sort of see that there are provisions for temporary entry for work purposes. So we've got some provisions on visa-free business trips uh, lasting up to 90 days in any 180-day period, but only for certain purposes like attending meetings and trade fairs or selling goods and services. And beyond those, the rules will, as James was saying, vary a lot between EU member states. Uh, we also have you know, rules allowing for sort of entry for establishment purposes, you know, to set up an enterprise or business, for intra-company transfers, uh, for you know, for self-employed professionals to provide services. But again, you know, as James was saying, lots of different restrictions. Lots of member states have those opt-outs or reservations, uh, and lots of specific rules that might apply. As uh, James was saying, you know, we have no uh, mutual recognition of professional qualifications. Uh, 
uh, which was a big uh, UK ask. We do know that the professional qualifications of those citizens who benefit from the withdrawal agreement, uh, that agreement reached last year with the EU, basically those citizens already living in the EU or EU citizens living in the UK, they will be able to continue to rely on their existing qualifications. But going forward, it's going to be a much, you know, much more patchwork arrangement. On social security, uh, we have got a very detailed protocol. And basically, uh, you know, UK nationals travelling, working or living in the EU and vice versa uh, will retain entitlements to some benefits, including state pensions, health care, disability and employment benefits. And that list of benefits that will still apply is much broader than the list that the UK proposed uh, and more in line with the list that the EU had proposed. Um, and that will uh, you know, help facilitate sort of cross-border travel and working, avoid sort of duplication of social security rules and payments, uh, makes things a bit easier. and means that where you're eligible, your UK nationals in the EU or EU nationals in the UK should be treated as uh, the nationals of uh, the particular state they're in. Um, and we also have the continuation of reciprocal health care arrangements. So in particular, sort of the European health insurance card arrangement, which is something that uh, both sides have talked about, but we didn't really expect would happen. So that's sort of a, a positive, really, and a bit of a win for those traveling on holiday or short term visits, uh, you know, in particular, who will be able to rely on that uh, health insurance card going forward. And then finally, on EU programmes. So these are sort of EU funded programmes for cooperation in various different areas like scientific research. The UK will continue to pay into and participate in some of the EU programmes where there is mutual interest. And that includes uh, Horizon Europe, so the big sort of European scientific research programme, but also you know, the Nuclear Euratom Research and Training Project and various others. But it won't do so on the same terms as now. Uh, and I think as widely publicised, the UK won't participate in all EU programmes that it currently uh, participates in, including the Erasmus Student Exchange Scheme, where the government has said that it's going to provide a replacement scheme called the Choring Scheme for sort of global student exchanges. We are still sort of lacking proper detail on that and how it's going to work, although from the sort of initial reaction from people in the sector, it seems like this may be significantly more restrictive uh, doesn't look like it has the money behind it to sort of replicate the kind of exchange programs that were available under Erasmus. So there's lots of little bits like that in the deal, lots of different areas, but that's just a flavour of some of the other things we haven't quite touched on. Okay, that's uh, useful. I'm not going to talk, uh, talk more about the sort of detailed provisions, but Georgie, you've been sitting there very patiently. Uh, Maddie said at the start that the... Uh, EU, in a sense, has got the form of agreement it wanted, a single agreement rather than the multiple treaties that the UK was originally suggesting. Um, what's the governance structure? James, I think, touched on this briefly. What's the governance structure look like? Yeah, so that's a really excellent question. Um, well, basically, the UK and the EU have gone for a joint partnership council. So it's a committee basically formed of UK and EU officials. And that committee is going to oversee, manage and discuss the deal over time. It's also kind of the main forum to try and resolve disputes diplomatically. 
Um, and joint committees are quite common features, actually, for trade agreements. So the EU has one with Canada, for example, and I know that China has one with the Gulf Corporation Council as well. Um, but I think it's fair to say that this joint partnership council is incredibly complex. So there's one main committee. That main committee is supported by nine subcommittees, 10 specialised committees and four working groups each overseeing a different area and part of the agreement. So the reality really is that although this may be the end of Brexit talks, it's certainly not the end of UK-EU talks. That's really interesting. And what about uh, this issue that the UK was very keen to avoid, this question of cross-retaliation that uh, we've mentioned a bit about dispute resolution. So what the process is here, is the UK vulnerable to the EU taking action in an unrelated area? Georgie, do you try and pick that one up? Yeah, I mean, possibly. But then again, like James said, you know, there are ways that that kind of the EU um, in its trade agreements with third countries tries to resolve disputes. And so they will first and foremost try and resolve a dispute diplomatically in the Joint Partnership Council. Then there is the possibility, of course, an arbitration uh, uh, tribunal, again, an independent tribunal to try and resolve that dispute if they can't do it diplomatically. Um, But yes, cross-retaliation is a feature. And it's in fact one that the Commission was very keen to highlight in its press conference um, and also a press statement that they published uh, along with the deal. And the idea of cross-retaliation is basically if you have a dispute, say the EU kind of objects to the UK's manufacturing of batteries um, and they can't resolve that dispute, then the EU could suspend uh, benefits in a completely separate part of the agreement. Now, the UK wanted to avoid that. It wanted the suspend, you know, if, if the EU were to suspend any part of the agreement, it should be sector specific. So it should be about batteries rather than everything else. Um, but the EU really pushed against that. And, and, it, and it is a clear win for the EU in that respect. And we always talk about these sort of penalties in terms of the EU imposing them on the UK, but are they are they even handed? Are these sort of provisions that the UK could use as well? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, that was a key feature um, uh, of the agreement. And you can see it in the Joint Partnership Council, you know, formed of an equal number of EU and UK officials, an independent tribunal, again, um, just uh, very fair. And then here as well, these, these retaliation measures are definitely something that the UK could use as well. Um, uh, and, and sort of decide that actually, if it's not happy with one of the things and feels that the EU has breached the agreement, it could suspend benefits in another part of the agreement as well. And Georgie, what do you think this sort of governance structure means for the way the UK has to think about interacting with the EU in the future? You've written about uh, about being a third country and trying to influence from outside you know, do you think the UK's worked out properly at the moment how it's going to have to rethink how it interacts with the EU? What structures does it need to put in place internally? I mean, it's obviously very difficult to know exactly, you know, what what the thinking is in Whitehall. But certainly, I think there is a realisation. I mean, throughout the negotiations, there was a realisation that negotiating inside the EU is a very different experience to negotiating with the EU. And likewise, I think trying to kind of influence the EU from the outside is much harder than than, than doing it from the inside. And you're right, there are several reasons why the UK does have an interest in what's going on in the EU. One for Northern Ireland, where we know that uh, you know some EU rules will continue to apply so long as the Northern Ireland Protocol is in place. Um, but also if the EU updates its rule book, 
um, you know, James and, and, and Maddie were kind of looking at how, how that might impact um, trade with the UK. So the UK really does have an interest. And the reality is, is that it can't rely on this joint partnership council to have those discussions. That joint partnership um, council is responsible for overseeing and discussing the deal, not for discussing what's happening in the EU on the side. So I think there has been a recognition, you know, the Chancellor um, committed in the spending review, uh, more money to diplomatic outreach um, to the EU institutions and across EU member states. But certainly it's going to be a bit of a learning curve. And um, I'm just really glad that we wrote that report because um, it was a really interesting exercise talking to Canadians and Americans, Australians, but also the Swiss and Norwegians who have so much experience in trying to to influence the EU from the outside. It is possible, but it is obviously more complicated. Okay, so everybody read that report. Um, Maddie, that's the deal. It's done deal. Uh, Parliament's going to consider it, I think, on Wednesday this week. Can MPs change anything? Yeah, so so on Wednesday, uh, Parliament will be asked to scrutinise the legislation that will give the agreement effect in UK law. Um, and so that's actually what they're going to be asked to be voting on, not not the deal itself. Although I do think, you know, this the, the vote in Parliament will will sort of represent um, a sort of uh, support um, for the deal that's been agreed. And I think most of the discussion about in the debate will be about the deal rather than necessarily the legislation. Um, but no, I mean, ultimately, MPs can't, they can't amend the deal. Um, they can raise any concerns that they have and the government can sort of take them into consideration. But they're not going to be voting on the text. They're not amending the text. They'll look at the legislation. Um, and really, we're expecting them to pass the legislation. You know, we've already heard that Keir Starmer is going to support the deal. Um, I think the SNP have just announced that they're going to oppose it. But if you've got Labour on board and most of your Conservative MPs on board, um, there shouldn't be any problems. And again, although I think peers will be, peers in the House of Lords will be particularly unhappy that they have had so little time to look at the agreement but also not much time to scrutinize the legislation and it is worth saying that when you pass legislation at a rush there are always risks that mistakes are made um but i think that we'll also see them support the deal because ultimately um from their perspective um this deal will be better than no deal um so so i i think we'll see we'll basically see parliament rubber stamp it on wednesday and Georgie, I just want to turn to the EU side. The EU has a different process. It's going to provisionally apply this deal. I think it's allowing two months for for that. Uh, a question that somebody asked on Twitter, Kieran Martin, who used to run the National Cybersecurity System uh, Centre, asked whether this deal is at risk from the Walloon Parliament, who notoriously uh, got involved in the CETA deal. Can we take EU ratification for granted? Yeah, no, I, we can't take it for granted, but um, I'm afraid there won't be any sort of Belgian drama this time round. And that's because the EU decided to limit approval at the EU level. So in council, which is the grouping of the 27 governments and the European Parliament. And the EU did that, by the way, at great cost to its own sort of internal unity. I mean, member states were really not happy of taking away that, you know, taking that vote away from national and regional parliaments. And it really took Michel Barnier to do huge amounts of outreach throughout this negotiation to you know EU governments, the European Parliament, but also national regional assemblies, really taking the time to explain to them um, how you know how the negotiations were going and and and, and what potentially the outcome would be. Um, and I think they also agreed to this um, because it was exceptional and unprecedented. And I think the kind of understanding in the EU right now is if the EU were ever to strike a deal at the, you know on this scale that covered as many areas of member state law as the UK EU deal 
you know, does, then national and regional assemblies will have a vote in future. So this will very much be an exceptional case. So I think Boris Johnson will be very pleased about a bit of British exceptionalism there in the way the EU is approving this deal, but he might have to thank Michel Barnier for that. Georgie, I just wondered, as sort of slightly at the political level, we heard quite a lot, certainly in the sort of you know last couple of weeks when EU leaders started focusing on this, some of the people sort of being concerned about their domestic politics, France, Denmark, other places. We had some quite provocative statements from Clement Bone, the uh, French Europe minister, suggesting that the UK might think it was freeing itself from Europe was actually quite shackled to the EU. How's this deal going down in the EU? So I'm going to be honest, I I think the Brexit deal was really one day's worth of news. Um, And we know that sort of Brexit talks towards the end had dropped down the list of priorities in the EU. Um, You know, you didn't really see Brexit in in EU press all that much. Um, And now the feeling is it's going to drop off the radar completely. Um, And that's partly because there's a sense of relief. I think just like in the UK, you know, finally, we can move on, we can we can talk about something else. Um, And yes, of course, there are some politicians um, reacting. Clément Bourne, um, who is, of course, the French uh, Secretary of EU Affairs. I mean, he's been following this issue from the start. um, Because before becoming Secretary um, of State, he was Macron's advisor um, on EU affairs and on Brexit. So he has been following this from the start. And I think his key message was, you know, pointing out this EU document that was published, um, which showed kind of the benefits of EU membership and how different this deal would be and basically all the things that the UK would be losing out on. He felt the need to publish that. But actually, if you look at a lot of other EU governments, there's been the sort of, you know, we, we were happier deals on the table and now we're going to move on and talk about something else. Um, and I think, you know, if, if you take the case of Switzerland, um, Switzerland and, and, and the EU have, I mean, almost weekly discussions about different aspects of their relationship. Those discussions often make the Swiss news or are discussed in the Swiss parliament. They barely are ever mentioned in EU press or even in the EU parliament. And I think that's just a reality that we're going to have to get used to. But I think there is a, a message here for the EU, which I think it needs to take rather seriously and probably hasn't um, as a result of Brexit is, yes, EU unity is your strength, but also I think there's a key question there is how could a you know a big member state decide to leave? What does that mean about the future of the EU? And can the EU have a more sensible debate about its own future, not only framed in you're either pro-European or you're anti-European, but actually much more nuanced and hopefully looking at ways to collaborate and cooperate constructively with neighbours um, you know, in your immediate neighbourhood that are not members of the EU. Yeah, so of course, uh, the EU set out the benefits of EU membership and pointed out that the deal doesn't deliver many of those. But of course, that wasn't the aim of the Leave campaigns. Boris Johnson said his aim was to take back control of our borders, laws, money and fishing waters. So I just wondered as a sort of final verdict from the team, How do you think against those original sort of promises way back when, 2016, how does this deal stack up? Um, James. Money, borders, laws and fishing waters. Well, borders, uh, yes, I think that's fairly secure. Uh, The deal says some things about mobility that are quite limited and nothing approximating freedom of movement. Uh, but that has come at a very high cost in terms of the, avail- the ability of 
UK people to go to Europe and, for instance, provide services there. Uh, laws, yep, the UK can do whatever it likes in future in almost all areas, but that might have consequences, much as it would have done before. Uh, fishing waters is a bit of a mixed bag, as we were discussing a moment ago. And as for money, well, the UK might not have to pay into the EU budget in future, uh, but of course, it remains to be seen what the economic impact of the deal as a whole will be. Um, the, the general consensus seems to be that it will be negative. So although the UK might not be paying uh, cash into the EU in future, it might find it has less money. OK, does anyone want to disagree with James' assessment there? I think Joe. for anything I might add is that I think, yeah, I agree with James that I think you can definitely make those arguments that it does do does deliver on many of those asks. I think, though, for, it's important to note there are some things around the edges that people might not be happy with. So on laws, great, but Northern Ireland is obviously a bit of an exception where it is going to be continued to, to be tied to various elements of EU law and will be sort of treated quite differently. And on borders, yes, borders great, but we've also potentially got a border we didn't really ask for or want uh, down the Irish Sea between parts of the UK as well. I think, though, one thing I just want to say is that the big issue I find is that I don't think the government has done enough over the last few years to really explain the trade-offs involved in the type of deal it is seeking and to really picture all what this means, that we have decided to prioritise taking back control and having more autonomy over our laws and what we do. But there are, as James was saying, big consequences for that. And I think the risk is that that leaves a lot of people unhappy and also potentially a lot of people quite unprepared for what are pretty drastic changes coming in just a few days' time at a particularly difficult time for business given COVID and the economic uh, you know, affairs at the moment. So I think, you know, agree very much with, with James, but I think the failure to sort of properly explain what is happening is going to come back and bite the government a little bit. And Georgie, you wanted to come in and then I'm going to give the final word to Maddie. Georgie. Yeah, I mean, I, I would agree with everything that's been said. And I think, you know, the reality is really it's too early to judge the full merits or not of this agreement. Yeah, there are some things that will change, but but ultimately, it depends on how businesses and supply chains adapt to this new trade reality. But it also really depends on what the UK does domestically, you know, whether and how it invests in industry so that they can become competitive, not only, by the way, on, on the EU scale, but also on, on the global stage. Um, and I think there is a real willingness in the UK right now to, to, to know what this levelling up agenda means um, and what the UK, how it intends to prioritise certain areas or regions and I'm kind of looking forward to, to what the UK does next so looking at post-Brexit reality rather than Brexit reality. And Maddie we can suddenly start thinking about post-Brexit on the 1st of January what's your final verdict on uh, on this deal? I mean I think I, I, I sort of you know to, to be boring I'm going to agree with what everyone has said I, I think that that the, the sort of you know James is right in terms of sort of what some of the aims from the agreement and the fact that that has sort of been re realized i think joe is right to sort of add a bit of caution and also point out the fact that a lot of people have no idea what is changing in a few days time and that is something that we've seen and i think we'll be talking about shortly but you know we've seen that a lot of um businesses business groups are sort of crying out for more detail about what this actually means for what is changing on the first of january and i think what what georgie has said as well i think is really really important and it's going to be very interesting to see how the uk sort of treats its newfound freedom i think sort of my i guess final reflection on it is, is the fact that you know you you mentioned it in the introduction, the fact that we we didn't know that we were going to be in a position where we were analysing a deal and maybe 
analyzing a deal on Boxing Day wasn't necessarily what we were hoping for a few months ago. But I think that there is a sort of, it is positive that an agreement has been reached between the UK and the EU. I think that it does allow for a sort of a sort of bit of a fresh start. We've spent the last four years being very inward looking and there's been so much tension and um, sort of, you know, a very, it's been a very divided country. And I think that now there is an agreement it sort of allows there to be a sort of a bit of a reset both in terms of relations with the EU but also sort of as a country and and I mean maybe I'll be proved wrong but I think that's what I'm hoping I'm um, sort of on a positive note that the having a, a deal will will bring is that sort of there's a bit of a we can move past this question now I mean you know, Georgie's already said there are going to be lots of talks continuing over the application of the agreement, and we won't know how it will function um, in in my detail. But but I do think that there's sort of a positive political moment as well that that, that we can sort of see in terms of the UK EU relationship going forward. Well, that's a great point to end a positive political moment. Thank you all very much for listening. As Maddie did in a fantastic trail, there we're going to plan. Uh, bring you another emergency podcast, go through the implications for businesses in more depth, find out how ready business is for that uh, big agreement. Uh, For some of us, our big task was to get out an explainer. Remember to check that out. For others, it's the task and the much bigger task of actually being ready to trade under this mass of new rules from the 1st of January. And just remember, a Brexit deal is life for life, not just for Christmas. So thank you very much for taking time. To listen, this may have been a long podcast, but the deal is much, much longer. So thanks very much to Maddie, Joe, Georgie and James for taking us through it so comprehensively. Thank you for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events. 